Hello, everyone. This is Frank Fear, and you're listening to Under the Radar. Well, this opening is actually a postscript shared with you after I recorded the episode you'll be listening to in a few minutes about the massacre in Buffalo, New York. And I recorded this a few hours after another uh, massacre, this time in a school setting in southwest Texas. What you will hear in a few minutes is my commentary, as I mentioned, about the Buffalo situation. And I, I talk about the immediate and direct cause of the situation, and certainly whether that is Buffalo or Texas or many other situations across the country, uh, it was a young person with a weapon. There's no question. Yes, we need gun management legislation in this country. Control. That's the what. It's not why these massacres are happening, though. It doesn't explain the why. And as I go into depth in the episode that follows, it doesn't explain why Buffalo, as many other cities around the country, is highly segregated. I think there is a link to both guns and the use of guns in massacres and things like segregation, uh, as we have in Buffalo. And, and also so many other issues in this country. It's sociocultural in nature. There is too much emphasis in America on rights and what's best for me, and not enough emphasis in this country on responsibilities and what's best for we, and the we writ large. That is people who are unlike me, other and all Americans. And one indication, I think, of the problem we have with the underemphasis on we is our collective unwillingness to invest in the kind of social support systems from cradle to grave that so many other countries around the world have in place. And as I'll speak in a few minutes, it's showing up in global rankings when America is evaluated against other countries with respect to social issues. And I also think it helps explain why. When it comes to social issues, we aren't willing as a society to do what it will take to address issues like gun control or poverty that has plagued cities like Buffalo, the east side specifically. And we've had those problems for a long time. We don't want to do anything collectively. If we try, it's labeled radical. It's considered socialism. It's un-American. And that's why I think the more things change, the more they stay the same. You know, there are a number of ways in which people have framed uh, what happened in Buffalo at Topps Friendly Market, you've heard them, you've read about them, and you've probably discussed them uh, with, uh, with other people. Uh, one, the obvious one is racism and hate uh, that's wrapped up in white supremacy. Uh, and another framing involves the ease with which everyday Americans can secure assault-style weapons and all the conversation about gun control that goes along with that. What I'm going to be talking about today, and you can also read it uh, at LA Progressive. You can go and find it at laprogressive.com. 
That's Los Angeles, so it's lowercase la, laprogressiveoneword.com. Um, and we appreciate, always appreciate, um, the efforts by uh, Dick and others at LA Progressive uh, associated with, with publishing my work. But the storyline I'm going to be talking about today is about segregation and the implications of segregation, the implication of people living segregated lives. And in that way, the horror of Buffalo is clearly, I think, um, in the picture. And you'll see why as I describe it, if you're unfamiliar with what's going on in Buffalo. But it's also a metaphor for America, because what I'm going to be describing is not unique to, to Buffalo at all. Uh, my winter home is Fort Myers, Florida, and some of the very patterns, the same patterns that you have in Buffalo apply uh, in Fort Myers and other metropolitan areas around the country. And that's that's one of the reasons I'm framing this, because I think that's important. The last thing I'll say before I get started is that um, I spent about 10 years of my life growing up about 30 miles east of Buffalo. And so I'm familiar generally, uh, obviously, with Western New York uh, generally and with Buffalo specifically. Um, one of the things, maybe the major thing that really bothers me about segregation in America, beyond the obvious that it's just not right, is that it's plainly in sight, but generally out of mind among mainstream Americans. Um, it's an indelible feature of the U.S. urban landscape and has been that way for a very, very long time. So we get desensitized to it. We get desensitized to its existence and it becomes accepted all too often as just the way things are. But let's make one thing very clear. The murderer was not oblivious to Buffalo's east side. Top's Friendly Market is on the east side of Buffalo. And if you're familiar with Buffalo, you have New York, New York Route 5 uh, that goes from east to west and west to east. Uh, and it essentially bifurcates the city uh, on the west and on the east. And um, I'm going to be giving you numbers in a few minutes in terms of the percentage of, of, of black Buffalonians uh, who live on the east side of Buffalo. And that's where Topps is, is on the east side. He was drawn, the murderer, was drawn to that area because it was exactly where he wanted to go in the search for his targets. 85% of what some people refer to as black buffalo lives on the city's east side. Uh, and African-Americans make up only 6% of the rest of the metropolitan area. Uh, that concentration makes Buffalo, New York, one of America's most segregated cities. And that concentration is a big reason why Tops was such an important establishment and institution on the east side. It opened to great fanfare about two decades ago because it was the first full service food market on the east side since AMP supermarket closed in the 1960s. The enthusiasm for Tops was is very straightforward. As many of you know, and hopefully uh, none of you experience, uh, 
Minority neighborhoods are often situated in what is called food deserts, where there are either no or limited options to secure fresh food, including fruits and vegetables and protein, healthier foods that many of us just take for granted we can, we can buy and consume. Um, what you have is a series of local mom and pop stores, convenience stores, with options that are heavy in sugar, fat, carbs, and calories. The socioeconomic circumstances in Buffalo and many other cities around the country are an historical phenomenon that so many of us have lived through. We've seen the population of people of color and minority groups grow over time. Then white families relocate to other parts of the city or they move to the suburbs and black and other minorities are left behind to live in a confined space a segregated space, apart from and not a part of. Politicians like to talk about changing things, at least some politicians, but lethargy tends to win out. And it's won out year after year, decade after decade. So the more things change in time, the more things stay the same in terms of segregation. And that is what happened in Buffalo, and it's happened, and it is happening around the country. But let's talk specifically about Buffalo, so if you're unfamiliar, you get a better sense of the context. In 2006, not a few weeks ago, in 2006, when a fellow by the name of Byron Brown was elected mayor, uh, and I'm going to quote here Mark Shear, who writes extensively about matters in Western New York, I quote Mark here, um, Buffalo ranked as the nation's second poorest city and Buffalo's overall poverty rate was 29.9%, close quote. Brown declared at the time that he would, quote, bring people into the mainstream of Buffalo's economy, close quote. Today, in 2022, Byron Brown is still in office and Buffalo's overall, overall poverty rate is about the same that it was in 2006. While nearly 40% of the city's African-Americans live at or below the poverty line. Those numbers are awful, but they're especially distressing because the picture did not change after the state and the private sector poured hundreds of millions of investment dollars into Buffalo in a program aptly named the Buffalo Billion. Yet, and I quote Shear again, Mark Shear, quote, Buffalo remains an impoverished city and there are few signs of progress, close quote. You know, it's not just everyday people like us, but also business interests uh, that are interested in what happened in Buffalo uh, and the storyline that I just described. And so Ellen Ackerman wrote an article in a business journal just a few days ago, and I'll quote her, starting the quote, racist policies fueled by lending practices, so the banks had a major role here, marginalized the cities, that is Buffalo, black population. A 1990 study on the state of Black Buffalo unearthed high unemployment, high poverty rates, 
and segregation on the city's east side. I'm still quoting her. A 2021 study then examined three decades since and found more of the same. I'll now quote from Ellen's article, but I'm quoting the authors, co-authors of that 2021 study. And I'll start with the quote. Changes in their lives, that is those living on the east side, over the past 31 years have been modest, the study authors concluded. Continuing the quote, during that period, an entire generation saw little, if any, improvements in their lives. Close quote. Leslie Mack, another, and that's M-A-C, last name, L-E-S-L-I-E, Leslie Mack, another writer, puts the circumstance in stark personal terms. And before I read you what uh, Leslie wrote, I will tell you that I've seen this in a number of other cities, and I might add, in contiguous counties, rural, urban, rural, rural, and it's this, and I quote Mack now. The life expectancy of white people on the west side of Main Street in Buffalo is five years higher than the black neighbors on the east side. Continuing the quote. So again, let that sink in. Moving just a few miles in Buffalo changes your life expectancy. This is the very definition, Mac writes, <clears throat> concludes of structural, deliberate racism. For sure, blessed are the nonprofits and other charities in Buffalo and elsewhere that address human, household, and family needs. I used to serve as president of a nonprofit organization. But third sector support is really meant to supplement public investment and not be a driving force. And because of that, if we rely or over rely on third sector report, support, that's the nonprofit with the public, the private, and the nonprofit. If we over rely on third sector support, we're going to see that problems are going to be serious. And public underinvestment is unfortunately over the last several decades, a hallmark of the United States. And when we look at the US and how it stacks up against other developed countries of the world with respect to meeting social needs of its citizens, it's very, very difficult, it's impossible to say, well, in that respect, America is the greatest country in the world. Why? In the Social Progress Index, which has been a study that's been going on for I think at least 10 years. In the most recent version in 2021, America ranked 24th in the world in social progress. Yes, the US fared well in some categories. It was number one in mobile phone subscriptions, also number one in access to electricity, but not in other areas. And those other areas include ranking number 35 in the world, number 35 globally, in premature deaths from non-communicable diseases. That means not from things like COVID, from non-communicable diseases, and number 97 in the world in terms of equal access to quality health care. 
So to no surprise, when we look at America and also at places like Buffalo, the people who can least afford to get hurt, get hurt again and again. And while it is easy to locate the cause, quote unquote, uh, in immediate and direct terms when something like the massacre in Buffalo occurs, in that case, it was a racist and troubled person with a gun. There is much more to the story and it is socio-cultural with indifference as a prime component. It is not about caring enough to do what needs to be done collectively as a society, and we don't stick with it until it gets done, even if we start. Without collective commitment to change and the dogged persistence in that effort, trouble looms just as it has and still does. And that is what India Walton sees. She is a Buffalo area activist. The Buffalo massacre, and I quote, is a moment of moral reckoning. And I continue the quote, racism is baked into our political and economic systems. And it's why cities like Buffalo remain deeply segregated. That's what Walton told members of the Working Families Party recently. And Walden is an important figure in the Buffalo story. She sought last year, just last year, to displace Byron Brown, the mayor I talked about earlier, by contesting him in the Democratic mayoral primary. And she won by nearly 5%. But opponents talked Brown into running as a write-in candidate. And as Branko Mercedic observed, they, quote unquote, pulled out all the stops to defeat her. And they did. In November, Brown's name was written in by an astounding 60% of Buffalo's 64,000 plus voters. Uh, Mercedic writes, Brown's improbable comeback was helped by a business sector terrified that the gravy train was about to end. Close quote. Donors poured in nearly a million dollars into Brown's write-in campaign between the end of the June primary, late June, and the early November election. That outcome shows how difficult it is to dislodge and displace, dislodge and replace, really, even when the political tea leaves seem to be in your favor. Think about it. Walton won the Democratic primary in Buffalo in a city where all members of Buffalo's Common Council are Democrats. And U.S. Senator Chuck Schumer and the county's Democratic Party endorsed her. The party, the local party uh, in Erie County didn't support her in the primary, but did when she won the primary. Brown's counter was that Walton, and I quote, is an unqualified, inexperienced, and radical socialist. Unqualified, inexperienced, radical socialist. And the label stuck. There's no question that because, I think largely because she's a political newcomer, Walton didn't run the best possible campaign. But still, think about what Brown said about her. And the irony of that commentary is that radical is needed in Buffalo because the political establishment has shown very clearly that they have not made the issues, concerns, and needs of Black Buffalo a priority. 
But what, does that really matter to the electorate? Apparently not. Six of 10 Buffalonians who cast ballots last November stuck with Brown. So is there hope? Well, there is no shortage of solid ideas, many of them informed by research, that have been broadly vetted and discussed about what needs to happen in Buffalo. And an excellent analysis with recommendations can be found in the 2021 study I referenced earlier, which was conducted by faculty, staff, and students at the Center for Urban Studies at the University of Buffalo in the School of Architecture and Urban Planning and also involved the UB Community Health Equity Institute. You know, I've written and I've read a number of reports like this. Uh, and this one is as hard hitting as I've ever experienced. The title says it all, the harder we run. And then if you read a few uh, paragraphs in, the rest of it is revealed, the farther we fall behind. The research team led by Professor Henry Lewis Taylor chides local leaders for failing to address the core problems of black Buffalonians. The list is long and it's not exclusive to Buffalo. When I think about my winter home in Fort Myers, Florida, this list would apply there too. Housing quality and affordability, health status and access to care, educational opportunities and attainment, both in terms of core and job training, employment opportunities and wages and the impact of gentrification which is becoming, it's always been an issue in recent decades, and it's becoming more of an issue of gentrification, page after page with analysis and recommendations for action. But nothing of consequence will happen in Buffalo without political will, not just with a capital P in the elective sense, but in the lowercase p too, because everything is political. It's about the public, the corporate, the nonprofit, sectors and the grassroots supplemented by expertise from universities and other places, making east side community development a priority. Then that group needs to work as one to establish goals, gather and apply resources, monitor results, adjust course when needed and achieve success. And the public needs to get behind the effort, supporting and applauding it, convinced that improving the lives of black Buffalonians is good for Buffalo. What I just read, the paragraph I've just read is basic stuff. Nothing short of what I just described will make the needed difference in Buffalo or anywhere else. And wise historical thinking tells us why. In the late 16th century, early 17th century, long before there was a Buffalo, New York, a fellow by the name of George Herbert, a Welsh poet and theologian, wrote extensively about life, religion, and society. He developed a keen interest in pithy sayings that were richer in meaning than their brevity would suggest. Proverbs, they were called. Expressions like, all is not gold that glitters. Well, today we call it, we'd call it, all that glitters is not gold. Or, help thyself and God will help thee. We'd say it today as God helps those who help themselves. A collection of nearly 1,200 of Herbert's favorite sayings were published a few years after his death. The year was 1640, and one of the Proverbs included in the collection applies well to the issues described in this essay. And I quote, using verbiage from back then, to him that will, ways are not wanting, 
The contemporary version of that saying is, where there is a will, there is a way. There is another way of expressing that thought, no will, no way. But unfortunately, that version, the second version, is what we have in America today in so many ways, whether it applies to gun control, whether it applies to segregation, climate change, no will, no way. It applies to many social and public matters, including those facing Buffalo, New York. The way forward follows the will to do so. Progress has always been and will always be a matter of will. Well, thanks for taking the time to listen today. I hope that uh, it was beneficial. I hope what I had to say made some sense at least. And as I always like to say, I hope that our paths will cross again very soon. This is Frank Fear. You're listening to Under the Radar. Take care, everyone. Thank you.